Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In November of 2021, Father Robert Sirico passed the torch to the presidency of the Acton Institute to Acton co-founder Chris Maurin. In this episode, Eric Cohn sits down with Maurin to discuss Acton's vision for a free and virtuous society in 2022 and beyond. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Chris Maurin is co-founder and president of the Acton Institute. Chris is a Seattle native and the youngest of eight children. After graduating with an economics and international relations degree from Johns Hopkins University, Chris settled in Grand Rapids to help found the Acton Institute. In his role as president and previously as executive director, Chris has traveled the world, lecturing and consulting in dozens of countries. He is widely recognized as a leader in nonprofit management and consults regularly on best practices in governance, management, measurement and evaluation, and fundraising in the not-for-profit sector. In 2010, he was presented with the Charles G. Koch Distinguished Alumnus Award from the Institute for Humane Studies and was the 1999 recipient of the Liberty Executive Award for Outstanding Nonprofit Management. Chris Mowen, welcome to Act Line. Thanks, Eric. Good to be on Act Line. So... It occurs to me that it's possible uh, that we have not told the story of how the Acton Institute came to be on this podcast. So why don't we start there? Why are we here? We're here to promote a free and virtuous society. Why? Because that's in accord with who we are as persons. Uh, And it's the way we're going to flourish as people. Uh, So it's good for people. It also happens to be... uh, Morally correct because it's in accord with our nature. Um, so Acton began 25 uh, – well, five years before the, the official beginning um, in, in 1990. And it began when father and I met. I was an undergraduate studying economics and he was a seminary student, graduate student, studying theology. Uh, and uh, he had already been through a conversion. Uh, if you remember the context of the 80s, this was 1985 – uh, was the height of liberation theology, which is this amalgamation of Marxism and, mm-hmm. and theology, particularly in a Catholic form and particularly in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of us had been concerned and noted that and had uh, in various ways spoken up or maybe written about it. Uh, when we met in 85, he was particularly interested uh, that a young Catholic guy, we met at a Catholic student organization, uh, was interested in economics, indeed majoring in economics, uh, but he was distressed that I didn't know any of the most important economists, according to him, people like Mises, Hayek, and Friedman. Uh, so he set about changing, um, fixing me uh, and my future career in economics. I, I was already uh, a, a sort of a free market-oriented person. And I wasn't on the left like father had been. Uh, years before, father had uh, had this great passion to help people like we do today, um, but he thought the way to do that was through socialism. And he'd been a leader in many socialist causes uh, and also away from his faith. And um, 
when we met, he had already returned both to uh, his faith but also to an idea uh, about the importance of freedom uh, as drawing from our very nature. And he entered seminary, discovered that seminaries were wrought with uh, socialist assumptions. Uh, and uh, that's about the time we met. And we thought, what a shame that people who speak on behalf of morality uh, so badly understand basic economics. So the beginning purpose of Acton really was try to marry the good intentions of theology, as it were, with the practical realities of freedom uh, and free, free markets. And we started with this kind of Austrian assumption, which is maybe more philosophical than economic in a way. It's the, the thinking about what motivates people to act and why and how they act. Uh, and um, people act purposefully, of course, um, and um, we wanted them to act in a purpose that increased human flourishing and didn't invite more regulation and, and government largesse. Uh, so the, the the opening idea of Acton was to help people in the religious community that he was engaged in at seminary better understand economics, but also to tell uh, lay people, uh, business community, and people more generally that they had an obligation to use their freedom wisely, that both were necessary. Why Lord Acton is the namesake for the Institute? Yeah, that's interesting. I give full credit to Father for that. When we first started talking about the idea, it was going to be the Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. And a couple months later, when I moved to Grand Rapids, he told me that he had added Acton, this guy Acton, and I'll admit um, I didn't know the name. I certainly knew the quote, as mm -hmm. everybody does, uh, the famous quote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's Lord Acton, uh, which is very apt, of course. But people often don't realize, um, while we could hurl that caution against government, uh, he was hurling it against the church, the Catholic church, which made him a really intriguing figure. Um, we, f we found that Lord Acton was pretty universally admired by people who knew him, um, and he was a tabla rasa for everybody else. Uh, and so it seemed like it was a good um, addition to the name we had started with. And of course, we're maybe most commonly known simply as the Acton Institute today. That quote that everyone knows from Lord Acton, there, there's what I like about it is there's even more depth to it than people assume when they first hear it. Because it sounds like you're talking about, you know, if you're the one wielding power, that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. When you read the exchange that it comes from with uh, a historian friend of his, Crichton, uh, you understand the point that he's making too is that it doesn't – certainly Lord Acton believed that it corrupted had, and had the potential to corrupt people who held power. But how it's corrupting of people around power and the things that people will do in service of power. And the question Crichton was asking him was about, well, how do we make allowances for the bad popes? Um, and he's saying no. Like you, if you continue to read on and what the, where the quote comes from, it basically makes the point that like you, we're why are we willing to excuse things of people in power that we wouldn't excuse of our neighbor or our child? And there's an incredible amount of depth there that I think informs uh, a lot of the work that we do here to have people better understand um, the nature of power and what it can do, why it's important, but also why it can be dangerous. Sure. And, you know, implicit uh, and explicit actually in that exchange with Creighton is the, the importance of the truth, 
uh, and and Lord Acton was a historian, and so for him, obviously, um, any instances where popes in the past um, had acted untruthfully, not in accord with the the core understanding of the faith, would uh, uh, undermine the very tenets of the faith altogether and, and the faithful. And so for Acton, it was a claim of truth that we shouldn't have this overly robust um, doctrine of infallibility, which is the subtext of, of this debate that he was having a discussion with Creighton. Um, so, you know, people who, many of the people who like love Acton see him as this lover of truth, has the certain humility uh, that even though he was himself a faithful Catholic um, and loved the church more than his life, that's a quote from a later letter, um, he took the faith very seriously, but he took truth <laughs> even more seriously. Uh, and to him, there shouldn't be any contradiction between the truth that we can discern and identify and the claims of the faith. And that at the heart is what the church believes about itself. Of course, when people get power, they uh, humans tend to mess, mess things up. Acton's founded in 1990, so right before, officially founded in 1990, right before the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, putting a period on a uh, long sentence in the history of the world uh, where you had this great power struggle between freedom in the West and communism. How have the problems that uh, the Acton Institute was created to address changed over the last 31, now going on 32 years? Yeah, that's interesting because as you say, when we were founded, we thought the big battle of the ideas of history had, had been concluded. Fukuyama himself, I think, had, had said that at the end of history. Um, we found it very interesting that uh, immediately upon the fall of the wall, Father and I took a tour of Eastern Europe. We brought these huge crates of, of books um, and we would just appear in a city because this was before the internet, before emails. We couldn't really announce our arrivals, but we would get to these places and uh, we would gather huge crowds of people who wanted to talk to Americans talking about uh, faith and freedom. And what was interesting was that even though the battle for freedom had taken place, uh, the next most important question for people that we met all over Eastern Europe was, now what? Mm -hmm. now, now what do I do? How do I live my life? Um, what do I do with my freedom? And that's hugely important, of course. And so that's the, the basic premise of Acton, that, that freedom is necessary but not sufficient for the good society. So we won the battle of freedom in 19... 8990, the fall of uh, real communism, but that wasn't enough to secure uh, the, the virtuous society that we all desire. Uh, and what it requires, the founders of America knew this, it requires both freedom and virtue, that people need to uh, self-govern themselves in ways that ultimately serve the common good or it disintegrates. Uh, it gives government excuse to come in and, and regulate and rule over people's lives. Uh, so self-government is is how we push back big government. And uh, so that was a lesson that we were beginning to teach the beginning of Acton, that sure, we have freedom, but now 
we need to use our freedom wisely. That's still a very important message. Uh, but we're back to fighting for the basic concepts of freedom again. Uh, and uh, that also shouldn't surprise us. Um, often said by, well, I'm not sure who, who to attribute it to, uh, but uh, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. So mm -hmm. we're never going to get to the victory line on sort of permanent liberty. It's going to keep coming up and, and demand that it be fought for in every generation. So um, we might have won it for a, a brief moment in the beginning of Acton, but we're back to fighting basic assumptions of the necess necessity of, of freedom. Uh, but it doesn't negate that we have to join that freedom always with virtuous action. Uh, so today, you know, back, you know, in, in 1990, it was clear who the enemies were. They, they were the left, socialism, real Marxism. Um, they were clear about their agenda, even if they were hypocrites internally. Uh, but certainly there was a vision to collectivize the world under Marxism. Um, Today, we still have people who are Marxists, socialists, and are clear-minded about their agenda. Um, but there are more enemies today. We have, uh, I hate to call them enemies, but there are certainly people who are on the right who are eroding uh, the arguments on behalf of freedom. Uh, so we have the usual folks on the left who we would expect this from, but we also have this uh, somewhat new challenge on the right. What's interesting to me about that challenge on the right is the um, it, it doesn't dismiss the idea of the importance of virtue, but it seems to suggest that um, compelled or extorted virtue is equally as virtuous as freely chosen virtue. Sure, as a unique new challenge. It's certainly not new, as that it, it has existed in the history of the world before, but it is uh, new in our time. Sure, and these are people with whom we would agree, probably on almost every one of the concerns that prompts their anti-market um, policy prescriptions. Um, and um, so that's what makes it a bit more a challenge. Uh, these are not um, often secularists who, who disagree on the virtue side. Uh, they've just become impatient. They see the world is becoming a mess. Um, there's a lot of bad things that are being done and indeed people not living virtuously, um, which we start out as a necessary premise for the work of Acton. So we agree with them. There's a, a lot going on in the world that's regrettable um, and they have resulted to the easiest solution, which is to sort of command and control. Uh, but it isn't a solution um, and we know from history that ultimately that doesn't work. It's and ultimately, it's contrary to the human condition itself to be mandated in your actions. What I think is interesting there too is that the you have a ideological orientation among some that is conservative, but temperamentally a radicalism. Um, that I think you can look at both the left and the right right now, and you can see that um, temperamental radicalism that will have consequences and in, in my own belief, I don't think really rushing to any of those solutions rather than evolving ourselves there uh, probably creates more disharmony than it fixes in the end. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. No, we're at kind of a strange and unfortunate impasse in our society. Um, we often talk about this 50-50 culture um, that seems to be roughly true politically. It seems to be roughly true on sort of a secular religious divide. Um, and it's becoming nastier that these lines have been drawn and people are, are unwilling uh, increasingly to think well of the other, to assume the worst, uh, which always has pernicious outcomes when you begin with that assumption. Uh, so I, I think part of our, our work um, in the coming years is trying to heal this divide that doesn't suggest, shouldn't suggest that we uh, mute our truth claims one tiny bit, um, but we need to be very actively engaged in trying to heal these divisions in our country. It's not not good for us. Why do you think it has gotten as vitriolic as it is now? I hate to say something as trite as social media, uh, but there's such a truth there. I, I watch as my friend's world becomes more and more narrow in terms of what they ingest in terms of news. We self-select and then social media selects for us uh, by what we're selecting, right? So our world, what we're, the inputs we're getting on, on ideas and discussions and debates get smaller and smaller. Uh, and some people get, you know, into a, a, a vicious small set of angry voices, um, which as a consequence makes them angry and assume the worst of others. So I think there's a real truth there. I don't know, if, you know, it's not everything. But it's, it seems to me, in my experience, an obvious truth of why we're getting more and more inclined to uh, fight each other rather than look for solutions. I think I've been reading um, Robert Nisbet's Quest for Community. And what's striking to me about that book is in 1957 is that it could be published today and it would seem just as relevant. And in a way that we look back at, you know, the time that Robert Nisbet wrote it and goes like, my, my goodness, none of these problems seem to exist back then, which I think speaks to how a lot of these problems ebb and flow over time, right? When you were talking earlier, I was reminded of a great quote from T.S. Eliot, there's no such thing as a truly lost cause because there's no such thing as a truly won cause, that these are battles that we continue to have throughout our, uh, throughout our time on this planet and all throughout history. We can look back and we can find those. I, I think that one of the things I like about being here at Acton is that understanding of the importance of uh, the formation of community, right? So you have – we have different ways of thinking about and the importance of subsidiarity and all of that, that we find the best places to address the problems locally and to your point about social media, also to the point about what we were talking earlier about of nationalism um, and the nationalist turn of the political right. It elevates everything up to Washington, right? Everything right. can only be solved at one level rather than understanding that there's a lot of things that can much be much better resolved – here in Grand Rapids by people in Grand Rapids or even just within our neighborhood. And I think the problem that you identify with social media, it takes us out of that. It, it allows us to knit together communities that can be useful. And I, you know, in my, my role here, I have to say, uh, in building digital community, it can be useful for some things, but it's never a substitute for real actual community and that we need the kind of subsidiarity and community building 
that can be, I think, runs through a lot of our work that we do here. Sure. It's very hard to live in unreality at the most local level, right, in your household, with your neighbor, with your neighborhood. Um, so what's important is for us to, first of all, deal with reality. And, and so much of these worlds we create for ourselves increasingly, and social media aids this, is that we live kind of in unreality. <laughs> uh, but subsidiarity helps us to to really engage the world, to hold each other accountable, to be able to see through and get to know people in a way that you wouldn't. You know, we all talk about how uh, social media isn't helpful sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, you email a friend or uh, your wife or things can get easily misinterpreted just because uh, of the, the form of communication. Um, and you can't read tone and context. You can't read and tone and context, yeah. right? But if you're looking at your neighbor in the eye and you're trying to figure out how to solve this this mutual concern, um, that's mitigated. Uh, so I, I think that's a really hugely important insight that Acton is animated by the importance of subsidiarity, moving decisions down to absolutely the most local level where the knowledge is, and where it's easy to communicate. Uh, genuinely with people so that we can solve problems together. So in talking about the founding of, of Acton and your first meeting with Father Sirico, he's studying the theological side of it. You're studying the economic side of it. Uh, we, we see now, uh, again, talking about some of the people on the right that previously would have been friendly to the idea of market solutions to a lot of problems that the market can solve or at least the market can address, becoming more hostile to it. Where do you think this hostility towards the free market, towards free trade, uh, towards a lot of the things that I think Fukuyama would have suggested were you know, what we had ended up on at the end of history – that these questions had been solved. Again, to go back to the T.S. Eliot quote, no such thing as a truly one cause. Um, where is this new skepticism of free markets and economic liberty coming from? Well, I think one of the reasons for it, even if it's not so identified by these friends you're talking about, is big government. <laughs> big government itself. Uh, and there are bad actors in the free market. Um, and in a truly free market, uh, they're usually punished by consumers. Um, but, you know, companies can often game the system and they can co-opt legislators and legislation to their benefit and create uh, monopolies for themselves or, or regulatory challenges for their competition. Uh, and this is manifestly unjust. And so people, left and the right, look at crony capitalism and they decry it and say it's fundamentally unjust. And we have to agree with them. Of course it is. Um, the first role of government is to create a, a level, even playing field. And they failed us at that. Uh, and so I think part of the, skeptic, the skepticism, which I have some sympathy for, is people on the right look at bad actors in capitalism – who have gamed the system, uh, and they blame uh, freedom itself, which is unfair. They should be blaming uh, a big, powerful government that can, can and does routinely, increasingly pass out favors and goodies and restrictions uh, to uh, bad actors. 
that's unjust and should be called out. And and what we need to do is call that out, reduce the size of government so it can't play that role and force it to play the role it's, it should play, which is uh, the creating a level playing field for everyone to participate equally. So a lot of the un- injustice we see in the world and decry left and right, uh, I think, would be mitigated if we had uh, a more modest, humble government. We talk. Uh, I remember this line from Milton Friedman. We talk about capitalism as a, a profit system. It's a system of profit and loss, and the loss is equally important, if not in some ways more important than the profit part, because the loss is what gets rid of bad, poorly managed companies, businesses. Um, but now we, you know, the crony capitalism problem you identify, where we uh, socialize the loss part. So um, and it's not. I don't think hard to understand why people would look at that and they see. You know, people at the time of the 2008 financial crisis who seemed to be bad actors getting bailed out while they may know somebody who's losing a home. Um, I think there was a fundamental misunderstanding there of like what what it was that failed. Um, and it gets attributed to, to capitalism itself when really it is the insertion of going back to power, um, government power into that system to fix it and then adding more of that same problem – on top of it on the other side to say, well, we need to do this to uh, address the problem that we created by doing it in the first place. Sure. You know, it's interesting. Um, when I was first becoming a classical liberal, I spent a good bit of time up at FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education in the 80s, late late 80s. And there was a mantra that we had back then, which was uh, defending the freedom to fail. People don't talk about that anymore. But that was a core part of my understanding of the freedom philosophy was um, we need to defend the freedom to fail. Uh, and now we can't allow failure. So we have to subsidize uh, companies and individuals uh, from their own bad behaviors often uh, uh, as a sort of organized scheme. I'm not talking about helping people uh, in a temporary manner. I'm, I'm, I think government has a role for that. Uh, but this sort of systemized approach of picking winners and losers uh, by government and trying not to let anyone genuinely lose by these huge bailouts is is a, a very big danger to uh, the core idea of freedom long term. I think you see this uh, very clearly on a personal level that if you can identify in your life something that you failed at, you learn a lot more from what you failed at often than the times that you succeed. I mean, we have that kind of winner's bias that uh, emerges when we're very successful at something and we think everything we did. Um, I'm, I'm, or ever will do. Or ever will do, right? Um, I think there's also, uh, I, I learned this lesson when I was running political campaigns, that the campaign that wins didn't do everything right and the campaign that loses didn't do everything wrong. Um, there's a mix of all of that. Sure. And uh, the ones, again, I think can think of those times in my own personal life where you fail at something, you learn a lot more from it. You can extrapolate that idea out to the marketplace that if we are not allowing people to fail, we don't learn from what they did wrong and learn and better ourselves as a result of all of that. Sure. Let's talk about um, in 1990 when Acton is founded over the course of – roughly 30 years, we've lived through one of the periods of greatest poverty alleviation around the world that the, the world has ever seen. 
Um, we still have a key focus on issues surrounding poverty here at Acton. Since we've seen that kind of mass poverty alleviation, what is the work that still remains to be done on questions of poverty, both here in America and around the world? Sure. Well, poverty is one of the most obvious successful manifestations of a free economy, as bridled as it's become. Uh, we certainly need to give credit to free trade and, broadly speaking, free markets and capitalism for eliminating poverty in the world. And when we look at China, for example, we see this remarkable uh, decrease in real poverty thanks to capitalism. Uh, so that's important, but it's still not sufficient. Um, we are truncating economic liberty, if you want to call capitalism that, away from the other liberties that make uh, for human dignity. And we see in real stark contrast right now, for example, in Hong Kong, where you have economic liberty, but you don't have freedom of assembly. You don't have freedom of the press. Um, they haven't come for religion yet, but they certainly have in mainland China. Um, these are, you know, parts of the human condition uh, that bring us our dignity, living out our lives in these various ways. Um, and um, it's not just about economics. It's important that people uh, not starve to death in this day and age when we know the solution to to ending starvation. It's it's crazy and unjust that that uh, there are still people in the world who are, are hungry because uh, we know the answers economically. But again, we shouldn't content ourselves to stop with uh, being successful on economics because that's not the only dimension uh, of the human person and experience. We need to help people flourish in all these dimensions of freedom. And so, uh, yes, um, economic freedom capitalism, decrease in poverty is important and necessary and essential, but it's not sufficient, again, for the good society. Um, you can be a, a well-fed uh, bird in a cage uh, and uh, you're not going to starve, but you're not free. Mm. And um, so we need to think of creating societies where, where people are fully free to live out their lives. The what, What's interesting about, I think, underappreciated in that period of poverty alleviation that we've lived through is, you know, I would often hear the question asked of like, well, why are people, you know, why are people still poor? And it's just such an uninteresting question. It's the factory default setting of humanity. We were, you know, the Deirdre McCloskey's great economic history. Um, I had her for a presentation or a group I worked with in Chicago. She talks about the great hockey stick of human progress. The people living on, was it a dollar or three dollars a day or less for really all of time until sometime in the 1700s and all of a sudden it rockets up. Um, to be able to offer the answer to that question of, you know, it didn't just happen. You know, the, the poverty alleviation arm of the United Nations does do some good work, but it's not because of them that there are that the UN may actually get rid of the designation of extreme poverty in the near future, that we need to be there to remind people that it was uh, free exchange, uh, free markets, free individual people that changed that course of history. Um, and for the 
not just the good, but for the great. Well, you know, because you've been part of many of these listening sessions we've had at Acton where we've invited in some of the leading poverty-fighting organizations in our community to hear their story, what they're discovering, where the issues they that are from their perspective. And, and I personally have learned a lot. One of the things that I, I guess I always knew, but it's become very obvious in every conversation we have, that um, the poverty that people are experiencing at the most local levels very rarely just an economic issue. You know, they didn't – it's not just that they didn't have enough money to pay the rent, though it's a real thing mm -hmm. that rents are too high for many people. Um, many people didn't pay their rent. <laughs> uh, there's lots of mental illness. There's um, lots of drug and alcohol abuse uh, in these communities. People are are hurting in ways that are much more than pecuniary. And that's a reality that um, especially people of faith need to take into account. To help people flourish, it's much more, again, than this simple economic dimension. So all the poverty-fighting programs in the world that are focused just on economics – are only always going to be ultimately a Band-Aid uh, if people have these deeper poverty issues, um, separation from family, separation from friends and community, the accountability of subsidiarity, all these things that we take for granted are absolutely necessary for everyone, including the poor. So it's not just handing people money to pay their rent. There's We need to reintegrate people back into community. Um, and some of them need a lot of patience and help from us in ways that are non-monetary. I think that's a very important point. It goes back to the what we were talking about earlier with um, sense of subsidiarity and community. You you hear this kind of there, but for the grace of God go I kind of saying that, you know, was, you know, be thankful because you could be homeless tomorrow. For a lot of people, for us, I'll speak for myself, it's not really true. I mean, there are, even if, you know, I lost my home tomorrow, I lost any, you know, uh, net worth I had tomorrow, you have family, you have friends, there's a lot of couches you'd be able to sleep on before you would become homeless. Um, it speaks to, yeah, on one level, poverty is a problem of a lack of financial resources. It's also that lack of local community, that people who don't have that support structure. And that's one of the biggest things that I've drawn out of these listening sessions with these social service provider organizations we've brought in here in Grand Rapids to our building to talk to us about their work is the importance of that community and network for people and the importance of building or rebuilding that for people if we want to seriously address problems like poverty and homelessness just in a community like ours here. Right. It's being disconnected to the natural order of things. I mean, we all are born into a family. So what's happened? Where's the family? Um, I mean, so we need to reconnect people to natural community and invite them to a broader community. You know, the the Pope Francis says a lot of challenging things, um, and sometimes uh, need a uh, good definition of some of the things he says. Yes. But one of the things I like, he's, he said from the very beginning, is that we need to be concerned for people on the margins. And he's often coupled that by saying these people are disconnected. Uh, and um, I couldn't agree more. And we see that in this, these examples we've been talking about with local poverty. People are disconnected. They need to be invited into the community, into the economic system. 
Um, and um, so I'm all in favor of reconnecting people. That's uh, part of our, our whole mission is help to help people flourish. Uh, and um, we'll keep uh, praising Francis here for a moment. One of the things that uh, he said that I also like that I think is a call to the way that we should do this work is a shepherd should smell like his sheep. Um, that it's a very hands-on approach to addressing these problems. And that's that's been one of the uh, amazing things to me about, again, hearing these local social service providers, the hands-on work that they do that is in its own sense community building. They are getting to know the people who have these issues, who are homeless, who are poor, who uh, lack a network in a community that may be suffering from some of those uh, maladies and ailments that you identified earlier. They may have drug or alcohol problems. They may have mental health issues. You can't really address those without getting to know those people, which I think brings us back to what we were talking about in the perspective of the Acton Institute of the right orientation of uh, government and power that, you know, the federal government can't know you and it certainly can't love you. Uh, but people, individual people who are in your community and your network can know you and love you and we have a responsibility to focus on those local levels and deal with those problems that we best understand because we're closest to them. Sure. I don't know if this is a fable, but it's a good story nonetheless that father often tells about Mother Teresa. And I had the privilege to go to Kolkata once and go to her home. Um, but anyway, father tells this story of a couple journalists, pretty young women show up uh, from a privileged background, let's say, to Calcutta and want to do a long story on Mother Teresa. And she says, why don't you come out with me? And so one of these women go out with, with her into the community uh, and they spend the day going from one distressed um, case to another and, and they finally are at some terribly disformed person on the street um, uh, with lots of open wounds and a stench about them. And this young journalist just recoiled. Um, and she says to Mother Teresa, I, I wouldn't do that for a million bucks. And Mother Teresa's response is, neither would I. Hmm. And I, I think that gets to your point. I mean, um, there's something that it requires a, the, the human touch and it goes uh, beyond what the competence uh, or practical use of government, especially from a distance, can do. We need real people who are willing to do something that's uh, impossible to compensate for um, and to reach out to people in their humanity to help them. I, uh, in conclusion here, uh, will confess that I have in a way buried the lead uh, which is we're talking to you today because back in November at our annual dinner, we celebrated uh, Father Sirico, co-founder of the Acton Institute's uh, retirement, official retirement. And for those fans of uh, Father Sirico, he's not going anywhere. Um, you'll certainly hear plenty from Father in, in the future and a lot of the work that he still, I know, has on his agenda to do. Um, but in with Father's retirement, I uh, become the president of the Acton Institute. Uh, so – Let's conclude with this question. We just passed in uh, the year 2020, 30 years um, of the Acton Institute existing, doing the work that we're doing. 
in 60 years, what do you hope that people will say about Acton and the work that we have done and the role that we have played? Sure. The facile answer would be a, a hope we would have closed up shop and have solved all the problems. Of course, we, we know that isn't going to be the case. What I hope people will look back and say that we've been faithful stewards of the importance of faith and freedom and have carried that torch to another generation and another generation beyond that. Chris Mowen is the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today on Acton Line. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.